We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning, continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, basic ecclesiology so far, Paul has um, addressed the division in the church at Corinth. Uh, he has made known how the church should view her pastors, and he has made known how the pastors should view their local church congregations. Um, he has been basically explaining to us the place of the pastor in the church and the place of the congregation in relationship to one another. And today's passage is a transitional passage uh, before Paul begins really addressing the immorality of the church at Corinth. He has one more statement to make about pastors and their congregations and the place of the pastors, and he, we will see him begin transitioning into addressing the immorality of the church at Corinth. Uh, before we dive into today's passage, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we want to thank you for everything you do. We want to thank you for this church body, for this local church family. We want to thank you for causing us to desire your word. We ask this morning for eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand what you have to say. And as we sit at your feet, as we learn from you, your words, these beautiful words that have been handed down to us. We ask you to come and wrestle with our hearts. Wrestle our, our minds and our spirits. And Lord, we ask you to, to win against us this morning. Conform us more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we love you so much, and thank you for our time together this morning. Build up your church and uh, help us to build one another up in in, you. in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read this passage together in its entirety. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 14 through 21, and then we will break it down verse by verse like we normally do. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of 
gentleness. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Now this passage of Scripture clues us into Paul's intent as he addresses the church. We see this here in verse 14. Everything that Paul has written previous to this, what Paul is um, admonishing uh, the church toward here in this passage and what he will admonish the church toward in later passages, and including as he addresses the immorality of the local church body. He says here in verse 14, I do not write these things, the things that he wrote about the divisions in the church, the thing that he wrote uh, to the church about how the church is viewing its pastors, the elders of the church, the, the things that Paul has written, the elders of the church instructing them on on how to treat and view their congregations. He he does not write these things to shame the local church body. Instead, he writes these things to admonish the local church as his beloved children. We've seen through 1 Corinthians so far how Paul does not see himself as a great spiritual guru. How Paul does not see himself as some... Uh, master or some some lofty expert uh, here to tutor, here to teach a group of people who, who are just students and to not be really invested in them, not be uh, really interested in their in their good. Um, he determines to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And when the church essentially rejects his message, Paul still reaches out to them and still calls the local church at Corinth, holy in God's sight, still believes that they have received the gospel and, and believe the proper gospel of Jesus Christ. He still believes they are in Christ. And Paul is interacting with the church at Corinth with such, such grace that is so difficult to learn in this lifetime. Um, grace is not natural for us to to practice, and Paul models it really, really well in this passage. Instead of seeing the church like students, instead of speaking to their shame, they are doing wrong, so I need to make known what they are doing wrong in a very public way. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of this, Paul writes and says, I, I, don't, I don't write what I write. I'm not instructing you the way I'm instructing you. I'm not disciplining you in order to shame you but instead to admonish you. Now, admonishing someone is correcting someone, but not to shame them. So this is like the child who, in the grocery store, is throwing a fit, throwing a fit, making a big scene, and the parent's response can be one of two things, right? Grace, child, we're going to deal with this when we get home, and we're going to have a talk about this when we get home. Or shame, a spanking right there, you're staying in the basket. Okay, those are the two motivations a parent can have when dealing with uh, his or her child. And Paul here says, I, I am not writing these things to shame you. I am writing to admonish you. One of those ways is an admonishing, um, an admonishment, right? Like, hey, uh, Child, son, daughter, I, I want you to learn. I'm interested in building you up for your good. I'm, I'm not just interested in looking good as a parent. Um, you, I, it's not easy to embarrass me by throwing a tantrum in the, in the middle of the floor. Instead, I want to work to build you up. I want to work for your good. 
So I'm going to explain to you why it's probably not great to throw a tantrum at Walmart right in the middle of the aisle, right? And I'm going to discipline you in a way that builds you up, that builds your character rather than just defends my, my, my pride, the pride of parenthood, right? And Paul, he's, he's doing the same thing with the church here, interested not in shaming the church, not, he, he's not interested in, in his own image, like, oh, that, I planted that church, that church is making me look bad. Like, that's not where Paul's focus is. Instead, his focus is, I want to do what's best for you. So the way in which I correct you is going to be more admonishing than it is shaming. And we understand the difference there, I I hope. This is Paul's motivation. And Paul does not see the local church congregants as his subjects or merely like students. Instead, he sees them like family, particularly, particularly children whom he loves and wants the best for. Uh, Paul is personally invested in people for their good. He's not personally invested in building an organization that looks proper in order to build his own reputation. Does that make sense? I'm not writing this to shame you. I want to admonish you as my beloved children. For, and Paul explains why, and and his reasoning is for the good of the congregation. Look at this. For, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, they're meaning you know, mere teachers, which are very numerous even in our own day, right? For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have any fathers. Here, Paul is drawing a distinction between someone who is a mere tutor, a mere teacher, and someone who is like a father to the congregation. And here he reveals like, if you are interested in having mere tutors, an endless supply of mere tutors, people who are simply teaching, then you will not have many fathers. There's a difference between a, a tutor and a, and a spiritual father. And here Paul is saying, I, am, I want to be, I desire to be your spiritual father, one of them. Because here he even says, like, if you have countless tutors, you will not have many fathers, indicating that it is good to have many spiritual fathers instead of countless tutors. It's, it's a good trade to make for the benefit of the local church body. Well, what is the difference between a tutor and a spiritual father? Well, the difference is someone who is a tutor is merely providing instruction with very little personal investment, right? You take this information, you do, you just do what you want with this information. I'm, I'm not personally attached to you. I'm not really personally invested in you. I'm, I'm hired to teach. I'm a tutor, right? And the world today has countless tutors, right? If we are interested in merely having a, a preacher or teacher who who is a tutor in Christ, we can get the same thing watching videos online, watching YouTube, watching the countless tutors available on YouTube who are not personally invested in us. We, we can get that just by watching videos online, joining 
uh, worship online and just participating from afar, um, our church attendance doesn't do anything more for us than watching videos on YouTube because we are merely receiving instruction and then doing what we will with that instruction. But that's not what it means to be to be the church. And to be the church is, according to Paul here, for the good of the congregation to have many spiritual fathers instead of countless tutors. To be able to say of someone, I that's someone I can imitate. And that person is personally invested in me. Let me name for you a few of my spiritual fathers, men who are more than tutors to me, men who are personally invested in me. And I say this to their honor. Katie's uncle, Billy Elkins, is a spiritual father to me. It was by his example, I, I imitate him. It was by his example, I learned how to exposit the Bible, exposit the text of Scripture. He is my spiritual example in that way. He is a brilliant expositor. And he strives to live by the text. My wife's father, Jamie Powell, he is my spiritual father. And he is my spiritual father, my example in the faith. I want to imitate him in the way that he builds relationships and cares about people and and has a heart for evangelism and sharing the gospel. He is my spiritual father. My biological father was not a spiritual father to me. There's a difference between a biological father and a spiritual father. And sometimes... Sometimes children are blessed to have a spiritual father who is also their biological father. And what a blessing that not many people today get to experience. My biological father was not a spiritual father to me. I, I, don't, I don't think he knows Christ. Please pray for him. Two more of my spiritual fathers are here in this room. Me, Albert... Kester, I desire to imitate that man back. He's not looking at me. Look, he's hiding his face. I desire to imitate that man. His, his humility, his readiness to confess his own sin to his, to his brothers in Christ, and his desire to grow in the Word, despite the fact that he has had so much exposure to the Word already and he's still learning new things. I, I want to imitate that man. And then Steve Faccio, I want to imitate you as well. You are a spiritual father to me. Your servant's heart and your depth of, your depth of, I'll call it a heart knowledge. And the fact that you can love people so much, it's your downfall too. You're never able to say no to people. <laughs> you know. But it's, it's such a quality. I want to imitate that. Yeah, I would rather have many spiritual fathers than countless 
tutors. By tutors, we can grow in our informational knowledge. But with spiritual fathers, we are invested in and we are sanctified. By the way, that's one reason the church gathering, the church meeting is is worth so much more than mere online engagement. Nothing wrong with online engagement for, for a time. Nothing wrong with online engagement or reading books or reading commentaries to supplement our time with the body of Christ, right? But it's, it can only be a supplement. We need spiritual fathers. But tutors can only take us so far we need spiritual fathers. And if the elders of the church hear what is being applied to Paul and what Paul is figuratively applying to himself is applied to the church elders, and the church elders are to be that for the congregation, but it is not only church elders who can be spiritual fathers within the congregation. There can be others too. We need spiritual fathers. We need mentors in the faith and Women can be spiritual mothers to young women. We need women who are, who are teaching young women how to love God and how to love husbands when they have a husband. We need spiritual mothers in the church who are teaching young women how to be women of God. That is worth far more than having a mere tutor or a mere preacher or a mere teacher. And sometimes it's the pastor's fault for presenting himself merely as a tutor. I've been there. I've done that. Not been invested. I'm just here to teach. I've done that. It's not worth very much. Sure, the information is good, but ultimately it does fall short. And we need congregants who who say, I need more than a tutor. I, I actually... I actually need someone to, to imitate. I need a mentor in the faith, someone who is invested in me, and I, and I can be invested as, as an imitator of that person. And the beauty about being part of a church that has multiple levels of maturity is people can be spiritual fathers and um, spiritual children at the same time to different people in the congregation. That's how discipleship works. Like It's, it's, inter, it's so intermingled. Like it's not just this top-down, bop, bop, bop. No, it's so, that's how, that's how discipleship is supposed to work. An intermingling of Christians and a pouring in to a, of one another by, by one another for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. And you understand, this is basic ecclesiology. Paul is getting at this like this is, this is how things should be. I don't know. Reality doesn't always line up with how things should be. Certainly doesn't for the church in Corinth. But discipleship isn't as ordered as we would often like it to be. Our youth are being discipled over here in this program by the youth pastor, and our senior adults are over here, and our young adults are over are over here, and and uh, you know our marrieds are over there, and. And uh, maybe, maybe we have a special place for those who are single but want to be married, so there's a special training class. And then our beginner Christians are over here and taking our beginner's Christians class and, and our church introductory. No, discipleship is not that ordered in the church because it's not about 
programming, it really is about relationships. It really is about people just being sincerely interested in one another. It really is about having elders of the church who are sincerely interested in the congregation's good, not, not just interested in, in having a platform to speak something. No, like really, really being interested in people. Not just building up an audience. But that's what it means to have a spiritual father instead of a spiritual tutor. And again, Paul says here it is good, good to have many spiritual fathers instead of countless tutors in Christ. If you have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, and Paul explains here how he became a spiritual father to the believers in Corinth. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Not biologically. He didn't biologically become their father. He didn't become their father by legal adoption through the state. That's not the kind of fatherhood he's talking about. No, this is in Christ, right? Uh, This has nothing to do with the age of a person, whether or not a person is older than another person. This simply has to do with what Christ has made him his status in Christ and his relationship with with Christ, that Christ laid it upon his heart to invest personally in the congregation at Corinth. He's not merely writing a letter from afar. He desires to be there. His spirit is with the church. He's interested in the church's good. This is the work of of Christ in the spiritual father and in Paul and the elders of the the local church, hopefully, when applied, and, and in all of those who serve as someone else's mentor, spiritual mothers and fathers within the church. For in Christ Jesus I became your father. How? Through, through, the, through the gospel. Not through politics. Through the gospel. Not through some kind of superiority complex no, through the gospel not through charisma through the gospel not through his plans to build the numbers of the church no, through the gospel and not mere knowledge of the gospel, because Paul is getting it more than that here, right? That's why, that's why spiritual fathers are better than tutors. He's not just getting it knowledge of the gospel, but he's getting it he's getting it the, the heart knowledge of the gospel. So not only does Paul know the gospel, not only is he intelligent in the gospel, not only does he understand the gospel, not only is he able to work out the gospel well with fear and trembling before God. Not only is he able to rightly divide the word word of truth, not only does he have that skill set and that knowledge base, but he lives it. He sets the example. And the prime example here is the way Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth has not liked Paul 
The church at Corinth was complaining about Paul. The church at Corinth was divided, many of them against Paul's teaching, um, idolizing instead the teachings of, of Apollos or, or Peter. And Paul comes in and says, I love you. You are holy in my eyes. Let me serve you. Let me try to build you up here. I do not speak to your shame. Instead, I speak to admonish you as my beloved children. Is that not grace? Such grace that not many people learn in this lifetime. So Paul knows the gospel and he, and he practices the gospel. Now the gospel is words. Okay? Gospel is a word that means good news. Particularly the good news about Jesus Christ dying in our place, a substitutionary atonement, so that we would not have to suffer the consequences of our sins. Jesus Christ, he came, fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of his chosen people, fulfilled all righteousness by keeping the whole degree of the law, by not abolishing the law, by fulfilling the law. And he fulfilled the law even unto death on a cross as a substitutionary atonement so that I might be covered in the righteousness of Christ by his blood and the breaking of his body and so that I might have my sins forgiven because Jesus Christ, the perfect, the righteous one, paid for that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Because of Jesus, there is forgiveness no matter what sins I have committed. This is a gospel by grace alone and through faith alone. That is, that is good, good, good news. And that message, the words we speak, that is the gospel. But the gospel is efficacious. When the gospel goes out, it pierces. The words pierce. Between bone and marrow and soul and spirit, the words pierce. They pierce to the depths of the human heart. The human heart that is by nature made of stone. And by the preaching of the gospel and the piercing of the gospel... God removes the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh for those whom he has chosen. The gospel is efficacious. It does real work. And it bears fruit in our lives. It takes root in our hearts and bears fruit in our lives. And, and that fruit in Paul's life is mature Christian fruit. The fruit of the gospel in his life such that Somebody doesn't merely say, man, what great teaching. But that someone can actually look at Paul and say, now there's a man I can imitate with my life. There's a man who doesn't preach the gospel only, but he lives it. Now there is a false saying out there. That is kind of popular. It says, preach the gospel. And it's a misquote of St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> okay. He didn't actually say this. But the, the quote goes something like this. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. The gospel is words. That's what it is. The saying should go something like, and this is more akin to what St. Francis actually said. Of Assisi, not modern day St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. 
preach the gospel and make sure your life matches what you preach. Practice what you preach. Which should be true of us if the gospel has actually taken root in our lives. And for mature Christians, the gospel that has taken root in our hearts and is, and is bearing mature fruit in our lives, that is when we get the opportunity to become spiritual mothers and fathers. This is what Paul says, like, I, I became your father through the gospel. The gospel has taken root in my life. I'm bearing the spiritual fruit. I have preached the gospel to you. I have set the example for you in my suffering, in my tribulation on this earth. And, and now I'm setting this example for you in writing this letter. I do not write to shame you. I write to admonish you because that is the graceful thing to do. This, this letter is not only instruction for the church at Corinth. This is Paul's example that he is setting because he is a spiritual father. There are many things I have the liberty to do in Christ. Many things that are not sin that would be perfectly okay for me, but I hope to set a good example to the church. And so there are things I abstain from that aren't necessarily sin that I, I wouldn't be in trouble before for God for, for doing or for, for speaking, for saying. But because I want to set a good example, there are things I abstain from voluntarily. And depending on context, it's good for all of us. It's a matter of, of prudence, not regulation. And a matter of setting a good example. Further, there are many things I could get on to others for because it is sin, but I choose to overlook because I, I want to set a good example and show what grace is. And what is grace but overlooking many of the wrongs committed against us for the sake of forgiveness unconditionally, right? Because Paul is the spiritual father of the congregation at Corinth, he says, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. I don't know if I'm confident enough in my faith to instruct people to be imitators of me. Okay, Paul here, he's exhorting them, imitate me. Like he is confident enough in his spiritual maturity to say, imitate me. I, I don't know if, I, if I'm comfortable saying something like that. Even though I am to be an example to the flock, even though I am to be a spiritual father, I hope that people can imitate my life. I hope that I'm leading a life that my son can start imitating even now because he's, he's doing it anyways. It's natural. But I hope that I set an example of grace that people can follow in. I hope that I set a good example concerning my, my work ethic. I hope that I set a good example when keeping the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, not just because I have to be here, but because I really want to honor God on the Lord's Day, giving that to Him instead of trying to keep it for myself, right? I hope that I set a good example when I am 
practicing evangelism and building relationships in our community and not holding people's sins against them. And as far as it depends on me, living at peace with, with all people, I hope that I am setting that good, godly, biblical example. But as Paul said already here in 1 Corinthians, I, I am not a good examiner of myself because as far as I know, I'm doing everything pretty well. <laughs> according to my own judgment. Otherwise, I'd just change the way I was doing things. I hope, I hope to be imitatable. As we all should seek to be imitatable for the glory of God. Not for the purpose of having people fawn over us or whatever, right? So that people might be built up, sanctified by our example, and we might consider people to be our our peers rather than our subjects as we discovered last week. Verse 17, for this reason I sent to you Timothy. Well, now we know who's carrying the letter to the church at Corinth, don't we? For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you, he will remind you of my ways, says Paul. <laughs> well, he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. Like Paul has done so well denying himself and taking up his cross and following Jesus that he's willing to say, Timothy's going to remind you about my ways, the ways which I gave you as the church, which are in Christ. And he says, these are the ways I, I teach these ways everywhere in every church. And so our basic ecclesiology today is based on the way Paul built churches. And Paul somehow had to, had to say, and this is how the church is going to be organized, and, and Jesus gave him that, right? We, like, we don't receive everything so specifically, even in Scripture. So Paul says, you know, this isn't, and it's not, ecclesiology, polity, it's not spelled out specifically in Scripture, we receive some details, some necessary elements. The church is to have elders and deacons. Here are their roles. Here are the roles of the congregation. We receive that. But as far as like really specific structure, people are free to do that. So Paul says, teach them again about my ways, the ways I gave them to operate, which are in Christ. They are godly ways. And they are the ways that Paul taught everywhere and in every church in his time. And we will discover more about those ways as we move through 1 Corinthians here. Verse 18, Now some have become arrogant. Mm, we, <laughs> we don't know what it's like to become arrogant, do we? <laughs> yeah, we do know what it's like to become arrogant. We know what it's like to start out arrogant because that's human nature. Arrogance, the pride of life, the pride of youth, arrogance. And people come to Christ like Christ ruins them. I always find this so interesting. Christ ruins people, brings them to repentance. Oh God, I'm such a sinner. Will you please forgive me? And then like a few years go by and they're like, I got it all together. Like you're not realizing that coming into that lifestyle again is like inconsistent with the repentance you had at first. Um, it doesn't make sense to go there, but it, but it happens, right? And Paul says, you have become arrogant. 
as though I were not coming to you. You have become arrogant as if I were speaking words merely as a tutor, as if, as if I was giving you teaching for you to do with what you want, to accept or reject. And that is not what Paul is doing. No, he sees himself as a spiritual father. When a father teaches his, his son, a good father teaches his son something good, he then holds his son accountable. Paul said, what, you think I'm just a tutor? You're, you're becoming arrogant as if I'm not coming to you? Not, I'm coming to you. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant. Why, why wouldn't he care to find out the words of those who are arrogant? The words of those who are teaching what is inconsistent with what Paul gave the church before, inconsistent with the proper application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, because words are powerless on their own, aren't they? He doesn't desire to know the words of those who are arrogant. Instead, he desires to know their power. How much influence do those guys have? What are the effects of their teaching within the congregation. That's what Paul wants to know. So he's not just going to go in and start tearing people apart because they're saying the wrong thing. Well, that's good news, isn't it? How many times do we accidentally say the wrong thing? <laughs> well, I imagine we don't know how many times we do that because we probably don't know how many times we're actually wrong about something. But but Paul isn't interested in going into the church and like nitpicking every little thing and saying, oh no, don't say that this way and... He's not interested in doing that. He's not a nitpicker. Instead, he's interested in seeing the, how, the, how the arrogant have influenced the congregation toward division. How bad teaching has moved the church toward division and away from maturity. That's what Paul is interested in doing. The words have no power in and of themselves. They... Words only have power if somebody has, somebody has influence, right? Words only have power if they come from an influential mouth. And there are people today, I'm sure you can think of people you think about this way, right? There are people today who, when they say something, it just rolls off you like, I don't really need to listen to that. And then there are other people that when they say something, you're hanging on every word. Words mean nothing if the person speaking doesn't have influence. So Paul is more interested in coming to see the influence of the arrogant rather than the mere words. And he gives a reason for this. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Okay. But I thought the gospel was words. The key, but the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Well, I've already discovered like the gospel is efficacious. Power comes with those words. Why? Well, who do those words come from? Holy God? Jesus Christ? Well, the gospel's words are efficacious because they come from the highest authority. It's the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. 
and the Holy Spirit, those, those words are so authoritative and so powerful, so efficacious that the Holy Spirit is actually moving and enlightening people, giving people ears to hear the gospel so that they can hear the words of God and understand them and be changed by them. Like, like these words don't just come from the mouth of some preacher or they're not just words on a page. These words come with the power of the Spirit, the, the kingdom of God. It's not words only, but it is but it is power. And so Paul wants to come and see what powers there are trying to challenge the power of the kingdom of God. What powers there are other than the powers of the kingdom of God. What influence other people have who are distracting people and pulling people away from the correct gospel of Jesus Christ and the application of that gospel, the efficacious work of that gospel. And so Paul is not coming with words alone. He is coming with power because the Holy Spirit comes with him. And that power will work out one of two ways for the church at Corinth. Either Paul's coming with a rod, discipline, or he's coming with gentleness because the church at Corinth heeds his letter. Now we know by reading 2 Corinthians they did not heed his letter. But that's why Paul is coming. Now there's, there's an interesting truth here I want to get at. The gospel is words. These words are efficacious. But the kingdom of God then is not the gospel itself, which is the spoken message. Okay? The kingdom of God is not the gospel. The kingdom of God is the result of the gospel. Okay? The kingdom of God is not the gospel. It's not words alone. It is the result of the gospel. So the gospel is efficacious, it is powerful, it changes people, and then the people it changes, they are the kingdom of God. This is, again, basic ecclesiology, right? That people of God is then the church. Christ is building for himself. Now, these people, the kingdom of God, do not consist of words only, but of power. So you think about the way most people seem to think about religion or their participation in the local church. Um, instead of being the church, they, they go to church, right? This is a religious thing for some. Um, just like other religions have their religious activities and festivals that are religious things for some, and it is a compartment of life. Okay? That's what religion is. It's a compartment of life. So you go do the religious things, but the religious things are ultimately divorced from the rest of life. Work and social life and family and politics and government and anything else you want to add to that list. That is another compartment of life. Something our lives are... Uh, uh, some, uh, something our lives... Something that comprises our lives. Okay? And that's the way many people today, it seems to me, see church or faith or religious stuff. See, if, if Christ is Lord and the kingdom of God consists in power and not merely words, then these words we hear, the gospel, and I would include the law of God in this too, 
these words we hear, they're not just compartmentalized in our, in our lives and divorced from all of these other things. Instead, these words are so efficacious that they, they bring us to a place where the Lord Jesus Christ and our living for him envelops all of life. And so that we seek to not first work to support our families and then go to church as if they were compartmentalized things, but to work in our, in our jobs like, like those are things God has given for his glory. And our work ethic isn't such that I need to go earn another dollar. It is God has given me this work for his glory and I enjoy the work that he has given me. And if somehow that work pulls me from being part of the church, I will say no to that because Christ is my Lord, not just a compartment of my life. Does that make sense? The same is true when we engage politics.